Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. I remember being like, you're going to die. I didn't have this flash of emotion or my life flashing before my eyes and all of these memories. I was just really scared, like terrified. Scared like I've never been scared before. I've looked over and seen flames in my window and I remember standing there and vividly being like, you need to jump or go back in. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm Abby Feltham. There's nothing more exhilarating than packing your bags, saying goodbye to your old life, and stepping on a plane knowing you're about to start a new one. I would know. I've lived in seven different countries across three continents. Running away from my problems mostly, but that's a story for another time. When you abandon your old life for a new one, there's this excited nervousness that comes with it. The kind that makes you fall in love with life again when you previously felt so stuck. You might also run through all the things that could go wrong in your head. So what happens if you start your new life with so much hope and anticipation? Only for it to end in disaster? Here's Claire. I was working for a big company in the UK. Part of my job was advising people about moving abroad and let's think about with it. And I'd always actually been intrigued to do it myself. I was single. I'd come out of a really long relationship a few months prior. There wasn't really anything keeping me here. And I think I just had huge like FOMO that everyone else is doing it. So I was like, you know what? I'd rather try something. And then at least if it goes wrong, we've tried it. I am quite impulsive. I do try and trust my like gut instinct. Um, and sometimes it's really strong. I just went to see my boss. And I was like, right, I want to move anywhere. I don't care where. So I just reached out. Luckily, it's a big global company. So I emailed a few different countries. And Hong Kong was one of them. So I took a one-way one way ticket. I arrived in July. So it was so hot. It was so humid. I was put in a hotel in like the center. And I remember I walked out. Of the hotel, I was like, I'm going to go and do Hong Kong. I'm going to complete Hong Kong. I remember I literally walked just outside the front door of the hotel and it was so pale, so many people. So I like ran back up to my room like a little kid and just cried. You realize that no one's there to hold your hand, no one's there to help you. You just kind of have to slowly, slowly, okay, like, like let's start by going to find a coffee shop, let's start by finding a food shop. And But then equally, there was the excitement of being terrified, but also realizing that, you know, in a few months' time, hopefully, this would all feel for more familiar. I would hopefully find some friends. So, you know, knowing that hopefully this feeling would pass, but also it was quite exciting that unknown as well. I felt like I really stood out physically, obviously, I was wide. And I was a lot taller than most people. And I just felt really, I felt really fat. <laughs> I was hot. I was sweaty. I was just felt, I felt like a complete fish out of water. I was like, I, I don't belong here. In terms of like physicality, I'm not suited to it. I feel like really alive, hyper aware of everything. And that's quite a feeling that you don't really have when you're kind of comfortable and familiar with somewhere. So it is disconcerting, but also exciting at the same time, I think. Three or four days after I landed, I was in work and the office was like in a very remote part of, of Hong Kong. It wasn't in like the main center with all the other kind of big companies. So my commute to work was with very like a very local commute. It was a quite a chaotic route to work. So the first day I think I sat in the toilet and just was like, this is insane. But again, it's that mixture of complete fear and excitement. Claire stayed in a hotel for two weeks. 
until eventually she found herself an apartment. Like most places in the city, it was small and expensive. But it did have a separate bedroom, which, for Claire, was a luxury. It was the apartment Claire wanted. One of the main features of Hong Kong most people kind of get to grips with quickly is as an escalator that goes through Central because Hong Kong's so hilly. It goes like up. I can't even remember how many streets, but it's massive. So I was just off the escalator on one of the streets. So super central, super busy. But because my apartment was on the 19th floor, it had an amazing view, but it was also quite quiet. I was the first one I lived on my own and had my own apartment, quote unquote. So I felt really grown up. I shipped all of my stuff from the UK, everything, which didn't really fit. So there was a lot of like stuff that made sense in the UK but then in this little apartment I kind of had to figure out different nooks and crannies for stuff to go in so it had everything that I owned but it was in the process of just trying to make that feel like home. I was just getting to the point where I was starting to see Hong Kong as home. I had a really good circle of friends. I started to have a routine. I was definitely kind of over that first wave of like what the hell am I doing here and really hope sick and kind of getting into the swing of things. A year has gone by and Claire has finally settled into Hong Kong life. The streets are familiar. She has a favourite lunch spot, a yoga class. She's found her flow until one fateful night, the home she so lovingly created for herself turns on her. It was my 30th birthday. I'm not a big birthday person, never have been. You know, there wasn't a wild party. There wasn't any big 30th plans. That had been kind of the intention. I don't ever like big fuss. A few friends had just come over just to bring a cake over. I'd gone out with one of my other friends. I can't remember exactly what time I got home, um, but it wasn't late, late, and I went to bed. I remember I woke up and it's really hot, which is unusual because whilst it is obviously hot in Hong Kong, everyone has air conditioning. So at nighttime, you have your windows closed, you put your AC on. I love my room being cold. So normally my room is like super cold. So I thought that was strange. And then I remember I tried to turn the light on next to me and the light didn't work. So I was like, oh, the electrics must be out, which is why the AC is off. Fine. And then I was just a bit like, okay, you know, you're still kind of asleep at this point. So I could smell smoke or something. Again, your brain doesn't automatically jump to, oh my God, this must be happening. You're just like, oh, okay, this is strange. What's going on? And then as I got up, I realized that that smell and that smoke was really intense. This doesn't feel right. Okay, maybe I should start to think about like just getting out. The smell was coming from a fire that started in the living room. Claire pushed her way through the smoke. At that point, it was really smoky, really hot. You couldn't see anything. I I would sound panicking, but I think my initial reaction was like, okay, let's just get out. Something's going on. It was, the smoke was so acrid and hot. You couldn't really see or open your eyes. You couldn't really breathe. So I managed to feel my way to the door, but it wouldn't open. I remember vividly like pulling, 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 making like it was definitely unlocked. I couldn't pull it. And at that point, I think then, the panic and confusion like escalated so I was like okay I just need to get out of here there was a second door like further down into the kitchen and I remember I went down to try that and that wouldn't open I still didn't really realize what was going on but I was just panicking so I couldn't really breathe and I was coughing and I couldn't just really disorientating I think I ran into the bathroom I was literally opening the window and I was screaming I remember someone said it's funny what you remember I remember someone has said to me if you're ever attacked 
in a park or something, always scream fire because people always react to fire. So I remember in this confusion being like, okay, well, if this is a fire, maybe I should do the opposite. So I remember screaming like, rape, rape, rape. I remember screaming anything that could come to mind out of the window, which it seems so bizarre now. And I'm looking down 19 stories to the floor and it felt to me like no one could see what was happening. Then I tried the door again. And at this point, it was also really, really smoky, really like I couldn't breathe. I remember being like, you're going to die. I didn't have this flash of emotion or my life flashing before my eyes and all of these memories. I was just really scared, like terrified. Scared like I've never been scared before. My body went into fight or flight. My body was like, okay, well, we need to kind of get you fresh air. That was the main objective. So I went into my back into my bedroom, climbed out to the window. I get, and again, I know this won't sound like it makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's almost my body reacting, not thinking. And I sat down onto the AC unit of the apartment below. So just a standalone freestanding AC unit, not designed to be stood on, quite small. I've looked over and seen flames in my window. And that was the first time I'd be like, oh, fuck. This is serious. There's a fire and it's in my flat. I remember standing there and vividly being like, you need to jump or go back in. Like those are your two decisions. And they were as black as white as you saying, do you want tea or coffee? Like it was the most calm decision I've ever kind of been faced with, which makes no sense in the circumstance. But at that point, I've subsequently known that my brain just almost switched off. It was like, you you need to do one of two things. That's all you need to worry about. Your, Your brain's defaulted to like, like dinosaur age, it's it's like not thinking emotions. It's not thinking anything that's not useful at that time. It's just kind of take notes. So in a way, it gives you this really incredible perspective on what, if you strip everything back, what is that drive to live? Because it's always out of your control as you know it. Obviously, I didn't jump. You know, there's only one way that turns out. So I managed to pull back in, went back through, was again trying the door again and again, that wouldn't open. Tried the second door one last time because it was really getting unbearable. And I managed to open that a tiny, tiny gap. So somehow I managed to squeeze myself through this gap. I took all the skin off one of my legs to like pull it through the door. I managed to get into like the stairwell, like the emergency stairwell. And again, the funny things you do when you're not in that normal world. I remember I got the lift. I was like, things you shouldn't do if there's a fire is get the lift. The doors opened and there was a whole ton of people. There was all the people that like worked in the lobby, loads of other, I don't know who they were, like fire crews. But everyone just, the doors opened and stared at me. And I was like, I couldn't work out what they were staring at. And I was like, sure, on the floor staring. And then I looked down and I realized I've only got top on. I have like knickers. Everyone's looking sick, like, see my bits. So I'm like, that should pull my top down. I was like, send barracks. And at this point, I've looked down at myself and then I'm like, oh my God, it's not that. I'm just black, like, head to toe black. There was blood on my legs. My hands were like bones because where I tried to open the, the metal door handle, my hands burned. But I hadn't felt with this at the time. And then I was like, oh, and then I think I went into shock and they made me sit down and they were said to me, you need to go to hospital. And I, my private, I was like, I'm not moving until you tell me everyone is safe in this building. Like that was my biggest fear. Luckily everyone was, which I subsequently found out, but I think at the time they just probably lied a little bit. They're like, yeah, everyone's fine. You really need to go in the ambulance. But in the ambulance, I remember them saying to me, how old are you? I'm saying, I was like, it's my birthday. They're like, yeah, but we need to hold you. And I remember getting to the hospital before we got out of the ambulance, they said, put your hands in front of your face. And I said, oh, I couldn't really work out why because I'm all bandaged up at this point. As the doors opened, there was all these TV cameras, there was reporters, like flashbulb, shout, like shouting at me in Cantonese. I have no idea what's going on. So there's a picture of me out there in the press somewhere, just 
coming out of an ambulance with my like blackened head in my hands. Got taken into the hospital. I'm panicking. I have no idea what's going on. I don't even think things are hurting at that moment. I can't remember any pain. And they take me to a room because I'm lying on my back for until it's been on. There's a few doctors around and then I think they take an x-ray. The x-ray comes back. Then there's suddenly lots of extra people in the room and they go to put, and I freak out because I can't understand what I'm saying. And so I'm like hitting people. I said, I can't, I'm like really, really scared. I was getting quite like aggressive. And I remember the anaesthetist appeared from over my head and said in like perfect English, your windpipe's closing, you've got smoke inhalation. I need to put you to sleep and intubate you. I've got five minutes to save your life. After the surgery, as Claire drifted in and out of consciousness, her workplace was notified, then her family. Claire's mum and sister made the 12-hour flight to be by her bedside. Then five days later, she was discharged and moved to a hotel. Initially, when we were in the hospital, I was like, I don't want to see the flat, I don't care, I don't go there. But after I got to the hotel, I was like, actually, I do want to see it. And so we managed to go back. It was all taped up, but I went in anyway. Within about a second, I think, I was like, I know I'm done with Hong Kong. Seeing somewhere that's home be completely transformed into this like weird dark smelly everything's there but not there and it's ruined and it's a really it's a really odd sensation but i think what was weirder for me was seeing my mum and my sister go through and, and pick up photos and stuff that would be moved around i remember being like this could so easily be a scene of them doing exactly this but me not being here. And I remember later that day, back in the hotel, I said to my boyfriend, I was being 100% deadly serious. I was like, you need to tell me if I'm not here because I don't currently know. I I don't know if I'm like, am I dead? Like, and, I, and, and that sounds ridiculous now, but I was almost having this weird out of body. I think my brain was so overloaded that it was almost seeing the scenario that would play out as well if I hadn't been there. And I was like, I know... If I had died, I would have wanted to come back and check you guys are okay, so I don't actually know what's happening right now. I think that was a bit of a shock for him to be like, this is so big on her brain that, you know, it's, it's you know, she's having to ask very seriously those kind of questions, which again now feel ridiculous even saying it, but at the time was something I really needed to check, so I wasn't quite sure. I literally left everything in the apartment, everything. So that was bizarre, you know, everything you owe, every, like, memory that you have is in an apartment that's going to be cleared out and put in a bin by someone that's never met you. Claire left her job, stayed in Hong Kong for another week, then flew back home to the UK, moving back into her family home with her parents. I think there's something about being living in your childhood bedroom when you're an adult that's really humbling. It kicks the shit out of you because you're like, two weeks ago, I was quote-unquote high-flying in Hong Kong, like living my best life, and now I've got no knickers and I'm sat on my childhood but which I was really grateful for don't get me wrong but you have this weird moment of like what glitch in the matrix has happened that I'm I'm here it's that weird mix of I'm so grateful to be here and being looked after and then this whole feeling a bit like you failed a little bit then you feel great ungrateful feeling like that's how you feel and then it creates this whole wave of emotion but yeah yeah it was exactly where I needed to be I think my rea- initial reaction was like right let's just get back to normal so I was trying to figure out the job situation. I went up to London a few times, but that was horrible. Like I just lost all my confidence. I remember I couldn't get on a train, I couldn't get on a bus. It was bizarre. Running was quite a big part of what I liked doing. I tried to run and I couldn't because obviously my lungs were a mess. So all the things that I was trying to like 
look for comfort one that I didn't necessarily have a job I couldn't do running I couldn't get on a bus or a tube or do like normal stuff like normal people and that was really frustrating as well again it adds that feeling of why can't I dust myself off and get back to it I just felt like wherever I looked to try and find some route out was kind of blocked by my own inadequacy and my mum tried to like line me up with a, a, a therapist in my local area you know my parents live like in the middle of the countryside it was my first ever experience with therapy and I just don't think I found the right I don't think she was equipped to deal with what I've gone through and she I remember vividly she made a comparison saying she knew how I felt because her 40th birthday party had been cancelled at last minute it's no shade on this particular therapist I just don't think she had the skill set but equally I think when that's your first experience of therapy and the doors almost shut on you straight away for whatever reason it almost sets the tone of being well therapy will never work for me I tried it and it didn't work gradually I started to be able to run a little bit more when I say run probably like slow walking job I was definitely trying to run outrun a problem I was doing like nine miles a day I think that was the only time the noise was quiet in my head Running for me was never really physical. I mean, it's a nice like thing to be able to do to keep fit, but I find it quite meditative. Like if you get into some days, it's just shit. But if you get it on the sweet spot, it's quite meditative. You can kind of switch off all the noise that you're thinking about. And so, yeah, I was definitely trying to reach for that comfort, try and deal with everything that happened as well, uh, which wasn't necessarily the best thing to do. But I think at that point, I just wanted to get back to what I thought was normal. So I was like, right, let's get back into work. Let's move into an apartment. At that point, I was like, right, these things are all in place now. I've got some like grown up shoes I bought and let's just get back to it. Let's ignore this happened. Within four months, Claire had secured herself a job and moved into a London flat with her boyfriend. Eager to return to some sort of normality, she continued to go through the motions of daily life until she started noticing changes in the way she felt. I, I call it a reverse nightmare. So I would wake up and would just be sat on my chest this thing that had happened to me where a seat was the only time I could get any peace. So it was waking up with almost that like stone of light in your stomach. And then I started to feel like in a bubble, like the world was carrying on and I was in it, but everything was a bit muffled. Everything wasn't quite in focus. And I was just kind of floating around hoping to do the normal things, but I wasn't very, I wasn't really present. I didn't like to be around people. And they, it sounds like I'm thinking, I was just really sad. And I didn't really know at the time. And then I remember we were in Kent for my granddad's birthday. So big family event, like my family, my granddad, all my cousins, aunties and their kids. There's loads of people there. I remember being at this meal and it felt like my face was leaking. Like these tears were just, I saw, it was almost like I wasn't crying. It was just this emotion was literally pouring out of me and I couldn't stop it. I remember being like, oh, trying to catch something. Like what's going on? And then it was like my brain had just, it was like the, blue screen of death on a computer it's like my brain just kind of can't like we're done and it was like just as pouring I wasn't crying it was just coming out of me because it was a long family table I was kind of like in between lots of people I was almost like not trapped but I was like I just wanted to get out and I remember looking across the table at my mom and my sister watching their hearts break they were watching me fall apart and they couldn't do anything and I think that is in Claire described the period between fire and this moment at the birthday party as trying to plug all the leaks in her life. But there being too many holes, she couldn't keep up. And once she overflowed, her family urged her to seek professional help again. 
I remember I sat in the doctor's appointment and I said to her, I don't know why I'm here. My mum and sister had suggested I come see you. I remember being like, so before I'd even told her anything, I was like, I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm here taking up a spot of someone that really needs it. And you know, those people are not worse than me. I'm really, really sorry. She's like, this time is yours. Why don't you start by telling me what's going on? Like what's brought you here today? By the end of it, she like, firstly, she was like, you need to understand that what you're going through is just as serious as if you'd broken an arm or if you came to me with a massive cut on your leg, what you're going through is just as serious, if not more. So you need to recognize that this is a very real thing. I'm fairly certain you have PTSD, depression, clinical depression. These are very real things. And I said to her, and I remember this vividly, I said, no, I said, I'm not the type of person that has mental health problems. I said that and it makes me feel sick to my stomach that I said that now, knowing what I know, but I said it at the time. And she said, who is, who's, who, who is the type of person? So what do they look like? What do they do? This is something that is medically happening in your brain that you cannot control. It's not a failure. This is as real as if you'd fallen over and broken your arm. Like you can't use your arm, you can't use your brain. It needs help fixing. When something traumatic happens, your brain almost goes, there's a whole heap of junk here, horrible, horrible experiences. Well, we can't do this right now. So we're just gonna put this in a corner and we're gonna function on just getting through the basic things that we need to do right now. And then, but that pile of mess needs to be dealt with at some point. And that mess is with PTSD. And if you don't deal with it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you ultimately, in order to tidy through it, you have to actually, you know, pick through it and order it and find it away. It doesn't mean the memories disappear, but it means they're more ordered and you can process them. The therapy was just, that was hard. Like the, that was really, really hard going into not just what happened, but then the subsequent feelings and addressing the feelings of failure and how this has affected how you look at yourself as a person. So you're dealing with almost the event, but then almost who you were before and who you are now. And it you end up talking about one thing and then you realize that you've inadvertently veered off to a complete different topic, which is related in a way you didn't even know. And obviously a very good therapist just lets you go the direction your brain needs to. But whenever I used to have therapy, I used to come out of it. I can't even tell you how exhausted I was. Like, and I used to go home and just sleep. But it was almost like really restorative sleep. Like my brain just been like, okay, let's just let's just recover. It's like if you've gone for a run or something, you're stretching out and you're just giving your body that chance to recover. And it, I could, in some respects, feel my brain healing. But at the time, it's like going through your real painful massage. But you're feeling slowly, slowly the benefits. I was realised that I have to be selfish and look after myself. And I've never really done that. And I don't just mean physically, like mentally. So I will always say to anyone, I will always be okay. If I woke up and I was the last person on the earth, I know that I would be okay because I have had to build myself back up from zero. And I will always prioritize myself. And that sounds so selfish, but it's more like through this whole therapy and going through everything I've gone through, I've gone from being kind of knocked down like a you know, sack of Jenga and you have to find all those pieces that have been lost God knows where and work out how to put them together in a structure that works. You can't rely on anyone else to be those pieces or anyone else to put them together for you. You are responsible for doing that. That's a really painful process because you have to get to really know yourself through having depression. It's quite, it is a really selfish illness and I mean that with the most respect to people going through it, but you just have to focus entirely on yourself. So I think I probably spend a lot more time on my own now. And I felt like that. Initially, I just found it hard to relate to a lot of people because you kind of like, well, I'm in recovery for this experience, which how do you even? And also a lot of my friends were turning 30 at that point, which again, 
30 at that up till my accident kind of meant squat to me but a lot of people being like oh life starts at 30 and oh my god i'm so stressed about my first year the you know me like i can't even be i i, I don't have the energy to start even going into it so i'm just going to avoid this so i spent a lot more time on my own and i still probably do a little bit running is so hugely important thing but not just running i think physical and i know a lot of people won't enter this but again it's that meditative you're putting yourself through pain but good pain you know like you're, you're pulling weights at the gym or you're going for a big run and it's that feeling afterwards of like oh i'm knackered but it's kind of almost burnt the energy off your mind being busy if you gave me you know red pill blue pill you could take this the event never happened you know the fire never happened everything that happened afterwards would you do it no i wouldn't because i think this has been the best and worst thing simultaneously that's happened to me it's a it's a privilege i never asked for i never wanted but it's a privilege to have had the opportunity to go through something horrific not just the fire i mean like the mental crash and everything else and be able to come out the other side of it a lot more aware and a lot more patient with yourself i think you realize your body and your brain can go through a hell of a lot and i think people place a lot of emphasis on their bodies and you know go to the gym or i'll diet or eat clean no one really focuses on their brain and your brain is just really trying to help you what does recovery mean to you recovery means trying to be grateful for something each day and I try I know that this sounds so cheesy but I try every day before I go to bed to say five things I'm grateful for and being grateful and also you know that I have these moments every now and then I'll be in the park with the dog and it'll be a really beautiful day and I'll just stop and be like I'm so lucky and you know I think it doesn't have to be the big big moments you know don't go I'm, I'm super grateful for being able to travel and do this like, fun stuff that I do but just those small moments where you're you're grateful and you can see what tomorrow might look like you can see you know i'm not saying i can see meeks in advance but you can see that there's like good things out there that are on their way you've been listening to recovery from anything i'm your host abby felton if you enjoyed this podcast please rate and review the show and join the community on instagram at recovery from anything you can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website recoveryfromanything.com thank you for listening